Okay. Daniel chapter 7, the second part. Let's, uh, let's finish this chapter together. So find Daniel 7, and we'll finish our study there this morning. If you guys are ever wondering if you missed a study or anything like that, um, we kind of leave all those videos, the live stream videos on Facebook. But if you like something with a little bit better quality video and audio, we have a YouTube channel, and you can watch any of our messages there. They're all being archived. So um, utilize that. That's for you guys. If you ever miss one or want to catch up or go back and fact check me, that's good for me. So make sure that I'm not preaching any heresy. That's good. I need that check. So um, <laughs> speaking of which, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to preach any heresy this morning. Um, I want to begin our time together with the, the following quote. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We may chuckle, but it's very true. It's very true. And I'm not quoting that in reference to the election. I'm talking about the time that we live in. I'm talking about the situations that we dwell in. I'm talking about the families that have been entrusted to us. I'm talking about the church body that we are to fellowship with and care for. A lot of times we wish that things hadn't happened in our time, that we weren't in the situation that we're in, that we were actually meant to be born in a different generation. I really belonged in that generation. I would have fit in much better. Yeah, you might have fit in much better, and you might have shined a lot less bright as well. But you've been put in this time to shine God's light into this generation. And so are we doing that faithfully? And I reference that quote, in light of Daniel chapter 7, in light of its prophetic message, uh, we don't get to choose the era that we live in, but I believe what biblical prophecy teaches us and that we all have to learn from it is what to do with the time that's been given. Biblical prophecy shines light into our lives and shows us how to live in the time that we've been placed in. And as we delve deeper into the vision that Daniel's had here in, in chapter 7, and we'll pick up in verse 15, as Daniel's now going to seek some clarification as to what he's seen, he's going to be like, question, you know, which we would be the same thing. We'd have this vision be like, uh, yeah, I don't know what's happening right now. I feel that way after most of my dreams, actually. But it says, he, I think that we, we need to challenge ourselves to seek for the opportunity that this text will give us to draw to the cross, to draw us to the cross, to look to Jesus and receive his strength and empowering of the spirit and to do this. This is what we need to be empowered by the spirit to do, to live in light of the end. We need to live in light of the end, live in the perspective of how everything ends and not just, well, I don't know how I'm going to die. Oh, I'm not talking about your end, your physical end. I'm talking about God's end, the end and the finish line that he has established for eternity when he says, this is how this story ends. And that's what biblical prophecy sheds light on. It gives us perspective. It gives us the way to walk and how to walk in that way. And that's what we're looking for in our text this morning. So picking up. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, let's read this together. Uh, we'll read down through verse 18, and then we'll kind of break this down bit by bit, because there's a lot here. And I am not going to do, I'm just going to forewarn you, I'm not going to do this justice. I'm not going to be able to take a verse a week for the next, you know, couple of years and just go verse by verse. But I want to give you guys, as Todd and I were talking about this before, like the 30,000 feet view. 
You know, I want to give you the view to where you can look at it and go, I know where that is, I know where this is, I know where that is, and we can move around in it and give you a really good understanding of um, the overall picture here. So, Daniel 7.15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, you'll remember from last week, if you were here, and if not, by way of reminder of of this chapter that we're in, Daniel's seen a vision of four beasts. And we talked about how this vision runs parallel with Daniel chapter 2, and we're seeing kingdoms of men outlined. We're seeing Babylon, and we're seeing the Medo-Persian Empire, and we see the Greek Empire. And the fourth beast we see as Rome, but there's other aspects to it. There's this ten horn set that it has on its head. And we talked about how that correlates. And we'll get into that more in detail, but just kind of giving you an idea. Daniel's had this vision and he's seen some other things. He's seen the ancient of days, which we know to be God himself, come into his throne room and call the court to order and say, all right, it's time to do something about this. And so we see kind of a picture of God's end game, if you will. And so in verses 17 and 18, we get the broad summary of the vision for Daniel. He seeks a deeper understanding of what he's seen, and he'll get it. But first, the angel that's present gives him this overview statement in verses 17 through 18. He says, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. That's pretty simplistic to understand. I mean, you look at it and go, biblical prophecy is so difficult. That's not hard. He just said, these are four kings, these are four nations that are going to rise. So that's easy. He said, but in verse 18, the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. That's a very broad overview statement of everything that Daniel saw. And it gives more details we talked about with Daniel 2. We had some ideas of what we were talking about there. And this is running parallel, but it's giving us a lot more like the good stuff. It's giving us more detail as to how this is going to happen. So what's interesting is even though these beasts seem so powerful and fierce, the angel reminds them in verse 18, here's what how this is going to end. The holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Well, that's good news. Who are they? Do you ever wonder, you ever ask yourself that when you're looking at the Bible? Like, Who are the holy ones? I'm sorry. You said they, they, this is a pretty cool inheritance. Am I, you know, how do I get in on that? if you will. Like, am I a part of that? So it, this begs the question and it'll help us further in the text because the holy ones, or if you're looking at a different version, probably the saints is used. You're like, saints, holy ones, who are these people? It's going to help us to know who they are. There is not a people, a nation, a tribe of humanity that is born without sin. Can we agree with that? There is not a people on this earth or some tribe that's figured out a way to bring children into this world without sin. My kids came screaming into this world, sinners. And so did I before them, and so did my father before me. You know, it goes back a long ways, all the way to Genesis 3, right? All the way back to where the fall happened, and then they started having kids, and those kids were born into a sinful world, right? And so here's here's the thing. There is not a people, a tribe, a nation of humanity that's born without sin. We know that God is not done with his people Israel today. We know that from scripture. God is not done with Israel. He has more to do for them. Okay? We know that because Jesus it, because it's Jesus that they will look to in the end. 
They're going to look to Jesus in the end, and I'll show you this verse. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. They will look at me whom they pierced. Imagine reading this in Zechariah's prophecy over 400 years before Jesus even came. Before Jesus even came, before Jesus was pierced and died on the cross. And this text, it's incredible, says this. They will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Has this happened yet? No, we haven't seen that happen yet. They have not looked on the one whom they pierced. They have not wept openly over this. They have not seen him in that way yet, but they will. They will. That's forthcoming. And so in light of that, we know there's only one way that we can be made holy. Let me build up another side of this to find, by the way, this is all who are the holy ones. Just a reminder. So we're talking about the Jews. The the Jewish people have not seen Jesus as a whole in this light yet. They haven't seen him and received him as their Messiah. That's forthcoming. But we know there's only one way that we can be made holy. Let me build up the other side. It's not of our own doing, is it? I can't make myself holy. I can run around in circles all my life and try and regain something that I've already lost that I can't regain for myself. I cannot unsinify myself. Don't take me to the bank on that statement. I'm just trying to make it really clear to understand. Okay. You're like, sinify. It's true. Like I, I can't do that. That's not within my power. I was born with sin in me. None of us can work our way there. We must be born again through belief in Jesus Christ. Amen. We must be born again. And so in that, this message is salvation to Jew and Gentile or non-Jewish alike. That's what Jews and Gentiles must do together. We have to receive Jesus. That's how our sin is cleansed. That's how we are made holy. That's good news of the gospel that Paul wasn't ashamed to talk about because Jesus is able to save all who trust in him. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It's the power of salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. John agrees with what Paul said in the unifying work of Jesus in his gospel. He wrote in John 1, verses 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus confirms that in our favorite verse, right? John three sixteen. You must be born again, Nicodemus. God so loved the world. Nicodemus is like, how does this whole process work? Do you ever feel as lost as Nick at night? Right? Because in, in, in John chapter three, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. So in Nick at night, when he came to see Jesus, do you ever feel as confused as he is? And you're like, so do I re-enter the womb? And, and Jesus is like, no, John or Nicodemus, sorry. I'm so confused. I can't remember who I'm talking to. But isn't, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like so confused as to what the Lord is saying? You're like, wait, what? He's like, you're trying to understand something spiritual with fleshly eyes. You're trying to understand something that is very spiritual with fleshly eyes. We must be born again. Now, we're talking about what makes us holy. Those in Daniel chapter 7 are called what? Holy ones. How did they become holy? Great question. We know from Revelation 12, 17 and 13, 7 that the term holy ones or saints can refer to the church or the Jewish remnant that trusts in Christ. 
It can refer to both. It, it's almost like Paul said that in Romans 1, right? To the Jew and also the Greek. It's not doing away with the importance of Israel today. There is still fulfillment coming for them, but it does show us how our salvation was given to us, and that's through Jesus Christ, and that applies to all humanity. Make sense? So who are the holy ones? Yo. I fully believe that. I fully believe that we are in Christ. And I fully believe that that's what we see here in the text. Here in Daniel 7, I believe the holy ones are the saints, all who have trusted in God through Jesus, because we're seeing the end. We're seeing the end. We're seeing the the end product of what happens. And I'll bring that point down even harder shortly in our study. Look at verse 19. It says, Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. Now you know why I'm going through the rigmarole of telling you who the holy ones are. They're referred to quite a bit in this text. And some would say that this just applies to Israel, but I think that's problematic if you look at the entire text in its whole, which is why I show that someone becoming holy is not based on their nationality. Someone becoming holy is based on their trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's how it works. That's how we become holy. So here Daniel makes clear what he wishes to understand about the fourth beast and the ten horns, and especially about this other horn that's different from the rest. There's something distinguishing about it. We read it before last week in the text. It has eyes. It starts sprouting eyes. I mean, this is stuff of nightmares. We've talked about this. That's That would freak me out. If a tiny horn starts growing out of this freakishly crazy, scary beast, and it starts sprouting eyes and starts talking trash, I'd be like, I am never eating pizza that late again. Like, I, <laughs> I would just think this was a horrible thing going on inside my body. But you guys, this other horn is different from the others, and Daniel gives us more perspective here. He says, it's waging war. We didn't have that before. Now it says it's waging war against the holy ones until God intervenes and gives the kingdom to the holy ones or the saints, depending on your translation, same thing. So it's like this really cool picture, right? But notice what's catching Daniel's attention. This is pro- this is bothering him, this beast. It's bothering him how fierce this thing is. It's confusing. And it's funny that he's asking clarifying questions, but but the descriptions are like, yeah, but God... But the Ancient of Days is still where? He's still sitting on the throne in the courtroom. He's still in charge. He's still the one who is holy. So the angel answers him in verse 23. Let's look at this. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the Holy Ones of the Most High. 
His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers, rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Still bothered. Still not sitting right. Okay, what's interesting is we look at the fourth beast. We talked about how this beast has some characteristics that we would connect to Rome. Okay, as the iron teeth. And we we run this parallel with Daniel 2 where we have the legs of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, if you remember that. And we'll look at that and say, okay, the Roman kingdom, we talked about this last week, the Roman kingdom, nothing had been seen like it yet. Nothing had been seen like what the Romans did and they dominated for about a thousand years. I mean, that the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, nothing had happened like that. It was a beast all of itself. And we talked last week about how we have a lion and we have a bear. Oh, my. And we have the leopard. You know, we have these 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 animals that represent the, the three prior kingdoms. But the fourth one, this beast of Rome, we get no description as to what kind of an animal this is. Because it's something so fierce, it's an altogether its own beast. But you remember when we were talking about the, the statue in Daniel chapter 2, As we talked about that statue, we were talking about the feet and the toes that were iron mixed with clay. Now, if you know something about iron and clay and that type of substance, they don't bind together. They're unstable. There's aspects of strength within it that will remind us of a kingdom of old. But it has the destabilizing clay inside of it, so it's going to crumble. It's going to fall. It's not going to last. It's going to last for a short period of time. We're talking about something we haven't seen yet. We talked about how the ten horns that we see on this beast's head represent those ten toes that we see on the the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. I think that's really clearly to draw those parallels and understand those together. And so when you see this, and it says it's devouring the whole earth, trampling it down, the ten horns, he says, the angel says, there are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Okay? Now... As we noted last week, there's this clear parallel, but when we read about these ten horns, we don't have a literal fulfillment of that in the Roman Empire. Some have tried. Some have tried to pull up the Caesars and say, you've got this guy, and he kind of you know, superseded this one. You really don't have a good historical explanation in the Roman Empire for these ten horns, and I believe there's a reason for that. We haven't seen it yet. It's something we haven't seen happen yet. Because of what happens with this other horn, we're going to see that it's a very much of an end game, God calling this to an end and bringing history to fruition. And so we'd have to spiritualize the text in order to apply it to the Roman Empire of the past. Which means we would be shifting from the literal sense of what he's being told. He's being told here these are actual kingdoms, but then it would switch to a spiritualization, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you do that mid-text like this. Now, are there certain texts of the Bible that are speaking to a spiritual symbolism situation? Yeah, absolutely. There are places that spiritually symbolize things, and we know there's all types of literature in Scripture. You have historical narrative, poetry, you have... um prophecy. You have all different kinds of of biblical literature. And so understanding what you're reading when you're looking at prophecy and specific kingdoms are being named and being told to you, well, then we're talking about something literal here. The text and the context doesn't switch like that without being told so in any way, shape, or form. If we're remembering our parallel from Daniel 2, then the feet with the ten toes are iron mixed with clay. Aspects of the Roman Empire, but something different altogether is they're mixed. And I believe this gives us a very clear understanding of the ten horns that correlate with the ten toes, as has been the case with other kingdoms. The vision in Daniel 7 is yet again giving us more detail. 
It's a more detailed vision. And again, remember we talked about this. The statue of Nebuchadnezzar was really in a way how man sees the kingdoms of men. This giant statue of precious metals. And here we see how God views the kingdom of men. He views the kingdoms of men as beasts that are out of control, that are devouring each other, that are a um, deviation from his creation, if you will, because they have these weird aspects. And now this one, this fourth one with these weird horns and the horn with eyes and the mouth, you know, this is really getting out of hand, right? It's almost like it's getting worse and worse, church. I do believe that we're looking into the future with these 10. And here's why. Let's look at verse 25. The little horn does this. He speaks words against the Most High. He oppresses the Holy Ones of the Most High. He intends to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. A time, times, and a half a That hurts. A half a time. It's three and a half. Interesting when you think about Revelation, no? Interesting when you think about the correlation there. Now, if we take the literal approach to the text, which I think is appropriate, considering that it is still literal, and that that hasn't changed at any point, any guesses as to who this uh, world leader could be? You could say it out loud. It's okay. Oh, boy. (laughs) No. (laughs) Who is it? Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> did not see that coming. How did I not see that coming, Mike? I didn't see that coming. I was, I'm on a train of thought. I, I didn't like, I, poor unfortunate Mike. Um, it's the Antichrist. It's, <laughs> we're, to, we to, we're told he's going to do four things. I want you to notice these four things. <laughs> Stay on target. Four things he's going to do. One, he's going to blaspheme God. He's going to blaspheme God, okay? Two, he's going to oppress the saints. Three, he's going to desire to change religious festivals, times, and laws. Now, I think when we think about the Antichrist, blaspheming God is pretty, okay, I get that. That makes sense. When he'll oppress the saints, those who represent him and serve him, that makes sense as well. Why the changing do you ever, like, here's, here's me being Mike again. You know, why would you change the laws and the festivals? Why is that a thing that's noted here? Well, first of all, understanding the Jewish mindset and understanding the people, that makes a lot of sense of how atrocious that would be to them when you change their religious laws. But I like to go a little bit deeper. I like to go a little bit deeper because when you think about it, what was the focus of the laws and the festivals as delivered to the people by Moses? What was the focus? Hmm? points to the Messiah, and it's centralized around whom? God. It's all about worshiping God. It's all about looking to God and crying out to God. And we understand it, as Todd mentions exactly right, we understand it as a a picture that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And so the focus is to put eyes on the Lord, to worship the Lord, to think about the Lord, to focus on the Lord. Why will the Antichrist want to change festivals, laws, and religious things? Because he wants to be the center of people's universe. He wants to be who they think about, who they worship, who they cry out to. He wants to be worshipped as God. And so he is going to be central in their lives. He's going to build everything around himself. It's fascinating because Hitler was not the Antichrist. I'm sorry, he wasn't. 
But it's interesting to see how many things he did that looked a lot like him. Looked a lot like him. If you, the more you read about Hitler and how he rose to power, I'm reading the biography on Bonhoeffer right now. And, and as I've been reading that, it is shocking how subtle and how deceptive and how he wanted the whole world to worship him, to look to him and to bow down to him. Almost like a forerunner. Not the car. So the fourth thing, <laughs> more like a land cruiser. Four, he's going to have power over the saints. Did you notice that? This is the part that I think starts to rattle believers a little bit. He's going to have power over the saints, it says, for three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. We can correlate this fairly easily to Revelation 11, 2 through 3, 12, 6, 13, 5, which is the final three and a half years of the kingdom of men. Did you notice how I said that? The final three years of the kingdoms of men. Oh, that should get us a little excited, just a little bit. Because when you think about the end, do we think about how bad it's going to be, how dark it's going to be? Or are we thinking about this is the last three and a half year run of the kingdoms of men? This is it. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Because Jesus is coming. Because God is going to call that court to order and say, enough. I loved it. And I pointed out last time that we studied this in the beginning of Daniel chapter seven. Do you notice when it says that the beast was slain? It doesn't even say how. When the fourth beast is slain, there's no description. It's not like, and God said, he just said, call the court to order, and the beast dies. The beast dies. Now, we know some more description is given in Revelation, but I love the fact that here, it's enough that the Ancient of Days is done. It's he, When he's done, it's done. He doesn't have to do things. It's done. It's awesome. I love that. That's the kind of power. It's like, ooh, God's so cool. So, you guys, I believe we can see this scripturally connects to the 70th week of Daniel, and we'll bring that home harder in Daniel 9. we got to wait a little while, but we're going to talk more about that 70th week when we get there. I know a lot of people in the past, especially at Bible college, and I, I, I dormed with some of the biggest scaredy cats in the world. You know, I was in a dorm with eight guys, with seven guys, eight including myself. We shared one bathroom. I want you to think about a conference center leftover diet with eight guys in one dorm room sharing one bathroom. We knew each other intimately. So you guys, I don't know why that mattered, but we we would get into these conversations about, about the end times. We would talk about angels and demons. We pull out scripture and we would just, we, these were these conversations that were so rich. They would go late into the night and we would just be talking and just sharpening each other, iron sharpening iron. Sometimes I don't think we were sharpening anything. We were just wasting time, but it was still really good just to, to have those conversations. And a lot of times this fear would come out about the end times. This fear of what's going to happen, the rise of the Antichrist and all these things that we read about in Revelation and we see in Daniel especially, and, and, and they, they would get kind of scared of it. And, and I'm too stupid to be scared. I've always been that person. You know, like I should be afraid in situations that I'm not. Being in Harlem at 2 a.m., I should have been more afraid than I was. I was alone. Seriously. Pretty stupid to be there by myself. But I have no do-do-do just walking around because I couldn't sleep and my roommate was asleep. And so here I am in Harlem at 2 a.m. You guys, this is not something that we should be afraid of. The church should not be afraid of the end. This isn't something you're like, and we should all be really concerned about how all this is going to play out. No, we shouldn't. 
We shouldn't be concerned about this. God's in control of it. The Antichrist is only going to do what God allows him to do. That's what's scaring you. Did you notice that? You're not afraid of what the Antichrist or what some person's going to do. You're afraid of what God might allow them to do, which proves that you have a lack of trust in whom? God. We have a lack of trust in God when we fear things that can happen here in this life, and that's what we need to address. It's a lack of a trust in the Lord. It's a lack of a trust that he knows what he's doing and that we are in good hands. He is the original Allstate. There is no other higher, okay? You're in the best hands, in his hands. I said it last week, too. I'm going to get shut off. They're going to shut me off. Though This one's not on Facebook, so we should be okay. You guys, we don't have to fear this moment in the future church because we are children of the king, and the Ancient of Days is going to call the court to session. Verse 26, that court will convene, and his, that's the Antichrist, His dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey Him. Now God's going to judge the last of the kingdoms of men, and the kingdom will be given to the holy ones of God, the saints. This is fascinating, and They're going to be under the rule of the new king. This is fascinating because one commentator noted this, and and I did as much research as I could and agreed with him. To his knowledge, this is the first occurrence of this idea in the Bible. This is the first occurrence of this idea that the saints will rule with him and not merely that he himself will reign, that they will rule with him. It's an astonishing truth. It's an astonishing thing to think about. As far as we know, I couldn't find any other place where the saints ruling with the Lord was ever referenced. But it's referenced in Revelation. And you know what's powerful? Paul talked about it twice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's talking about saints judging saints. He's like, why are you taking carrying each other away to judges? He goes, don't you realize that you're going to be judges yourselves? Don't you realize that you've already been equipped with everything you need to make good judgments amongst yourselves? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. It's a powerful reminder of what God intends to do in and through us. Now, don't let us not get ourselves a little crown of glory here and start thinking that I'm going to be in charge of some district or my own planet or anything like that. Subtle reference there. You guys, don't think for a second that that's how this is going to work. You guys, we are going to be reigning with him, but he is the king. He is the king. I'm just doing his bidding. I'm just representing him. It's almost like this world here is our our boot camp. Because aren't we supposed to be living kingdom lifestyle now? Not judging people like, stop it. You know, like running around acting like we're in control, but showing people what kingdom lifestyle looks like and what someone who has been molded into the image of Christ looks like because that's what we're going to do for all eternity. Only then, best part, we should give a whoop whoop without sin. Yeah, no sin. (laughs) Delicious. Food's going to taste even better. You guys, there are two things I've done intentionally here. And I don't know if you caught it, but you may have. 
And if you did, you get the gold star. I'll have Ellie bring some over from kids ministry. I've used the term he and him without clarifying who we're talking about in the last several verses of Daniel 7. He and him, I didn't clarify those. That's subtle. Here's the obvious one. Did you notice if you were last week, I didn't talk about verses 13 and 14 yet? I ended on 12. I picked up in 15. Why? (laughs) I'll tell you why. Look at verse 13. This is the end of his vision. This is the end of the vision, so I saved it for last. This is the best part. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. I got goosebumps, and I'm not even started yet. Who are we talking about? Say it, church. This is Jesus. Jesus enters the scene and is the main character of this story. Jesus enters the scene and should have caught our eye and captivated our focus from the beginning because he is the point of this passage. This is the high point of the book of Daniel so far. This is the high point. We've been through all this stuff talking about God's sovereignty, all good stuff about the sovereignty of God. The Son of Man just entered the scene, and the church should shout hallelujah because he is escorted into the throne room of God and given dominion. This was God's plan from the beginning. This is the culmination of our history, especially for the church, especially for the church. Mm, It's so good. You guys, how do we know that we're talking about Jesus in Daniel 7, 13 through 14? I'm so glad you asked. There are many titles for Jesus in the New Testament. He is Lord, Christ, that'd be Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the Bridegroom. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and last. Many titles of God the Father are given to him. Many of the same titles are shared. He's the Great I Am. But Jesus never used these titles for himself. Others gave these to him. Others gave these to him. And if you think about it, he didn't even use the word Messiah except on one occasion when he was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. He refers to the Messiah. The only biblical title that Jesus did use, and that almost exclusively, was the title Son of Man. Son of Man. Did it ever baffle you as a kid when you're reading the Bible and you're like, he keeps saying son of man. Why does he keep saying son of man? 69 times it's used in the synoptics. 12 more in the Gospel of John. That's a total of 81. I did the math. <laughs> like, congratulations. That's why I'm a pastor and not a mathematician. When Jesus used the term son of man for himself, what was he trying to draw our attention to? Not bad answers, but when he was in his incarnation, there is a specific time. You beat me to it. Again, Mike. 
There is a time where he did that very, very intentionally. But when you think of son of man, you think of someone who is born of man, which makes you think of their humanity. What did Jesus want those around him to know about him? He was a man just like us. He was a human being just like us. He was fully capable of experiencing everything that we experienced in this life. He wanted us to think of him in the same terms as we think of ourselves, a human being. He was the son of man. He drew that attention to himself constantly. And I think that this is significant church, that Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, chose to identify with us. In fact, he delighted in identifying with us. God of the universe delighted in identifying with you. He wanted to be identified with you. He wanted you to know that he understood you, that he gets what you experience, that he felt pain like you feel, that he struggles emotionally and mentally like you do, that he gets the physical setbacks and the spiritual battle that happens. And all throughout the Gospels, we saw Jesus wrestle and struggle. And throughout that, he said, son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man, because he wanted you to understand that he was with us in the fight, that he understood what it was like and that he completed the race for us in the flesh. He could have used the terms that stressed his deity, but instead he stressed his humanity. And he didn't stop there with identifying with humans alone. He didn't stop there. He made it clear who he was, and he used Daniel 7 to do it. He used Daniel 7 to do it. In other words, he was directing the attention of the hearer in a very specific case And saying, I am the son of man, referred to Daniel 7. Want proof? Good. I'm glad you said that. Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 through 64 serves as the perfect example. Jesus before the Sanhedrin during his trial. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. First of all, how dare he? the audacity. He just evoked under oath the living God, and he's speaking to the living God. Sorry, I just, I get offended because I see myself. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, you have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, take note, you guys, in the future, future. You want to know why I'm connecting this all to the end times? In the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you really think Caiaphas didn't get it? Look at his reaction. Tears his robe, condemns him to death. Why? Jesus just said, I am the son of man from Daniel 7, and I will come in the clouds of heaven, and I will be given dominion. You can take that to the bank. Jesus pointed right back to Daniel 7 and said, that's me. He was given dominion, verse 14 says, and glory and a kingdom, so that every 
nation, every people and language should serve him. We're in Daniel 7.14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Church, how many times have we seen those words in very similar format used in the book of Daniel? We've seen these said before. What Daniel's been saying about the ability of God from the beginning of this book and what Nebuchadnezzar said these things, that when he said these things about the God of Daniel at the end of chapter 4 and when Darius said them about the God of Daniel at the end of chapter 6, they used almost the exact same wording as we see used here. Who were they exalting? Who were they exalting? It was Jesus all along. It was Jesus the whole time. They just didn't know it. They were praising Jesus because they're saying, this God is an everlasting God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will never have an end. And that was just said about Jesus. That was declared by Jesus. That was declared by God of the Son saying, he is going to receive this kingdom. You guys, if we are looking at the Old Testament and not looking for the scarlet thread interwoven all throughout, we are missing the point. Because the Old Testament scriptures cry out that the Messiah is coming. And the New Testament scriptures cry out that the Messiah has come. All of scripture sings of the praise of our God. All of scripture directs our attention to what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's personal. God made this personal. And it's powerful when we understand that. They were exalting the name of Jesus. And when you think about it, I can't think of a better way to bring this down to a closed church. When you think about this scenario that's being shown of Jesus in the throne room, in the court, given dominion, coming with the clouds, and we see him as God. We see him as the one who we are to worship. I cannot think of any better text than Paul writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, because of Jesus' sacrifice, because he poured himself out, because he made the sacrifice for us, that for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we watch the news, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. When the election takes a turn, left or right, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When a family member that we love and cherish dies, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when we can't beat a physical struggle, we can't get past a mental thing, or we can't get past an emotional thing, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has saved you from your sin. He has redeemed you from death. Lord, allow your divine truth to touch our hearts and give us movement for the glory of your coming kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lord, in our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lord, we know that you don't take us to temptation. We know that you don't tempt us with things. Don't allow us to trip into temptation. 
Don't allow us to be tempted by anything. Let us find our satisfaction, our joy, and our peace in you. There are so many things going on in our world that are vying for our constant attention. And I pray, Lord, that you would populate our thoughts and our minds. Jesus, with you coming in the clouds of heaven, you receiving a kingdom, and us, your people, reigning with you. Not for our glory, but as a testament and a testament to the ability of our God and our King. Lord, as we worship, I confess, I'm so distracted. I'm so distracted by what's going on in this world right now. I'm so drawn away by thoughts of what's going to happen next. And what does this mean? And what does that mean? And Lord, if there are any here this morning that are feeling the same way, would you just lift our heads? Jesus, to look at you, to behold you, and to remember how you lived your life here on this earth. That you came humbly and that you poured yourself out even to death on the cross. Lord, in my flesh, I'm too weak, but in the Spirit and by the power of your Holy Spirit within me, enable me to be poured out. Enable your church to be poured out. Empty us for your glory as a, as a sacrifice and as worship. We present our bodies and we ask, Lord, that you would not allow us to be conformed to the world, but transform us. Renew our minds, stir us as we worship you.